This episode of the Ottawa Entrepreneurs Podcast is brought to you by Extension Marketing. They act as your virtual marketing department, designing and implementing cost-effective marketing strategies that grow your business. For a free workshop, email them at workshop at extensionmarketing.com. Now here's your host, Pat Whalen. On this episode of the podcast, I sit down with Norman Carr. He's the owner of an IT company called TRM Technologies. He's also a former competitive athlete, having spent time on a national scale in both rugby and bobsled. We talk about leadership, and he shares with us the lessons he learned as an athlete and how they transfer to running your own business. I hope you enjoy the show. Hi, my name is Norman Carr. I'm president and CEO of TRM Technologies, and I'm excited to be here today on Ottawa's Entrepreneurs Podcast, and uh, I hope you enjoy uh, the session. Thanks. Thanks for coming on the show, Norman. Appreciate you taking the time out to visit with us. My pleasure. Can you tell our listeners a bit about uh, that may not know what TRM Technologies is all about? Sure. Um, we're a mid-tier systems integrator um, known originally for our network design and the engineers that work for us uh, built the first uh, Canada-wide non-telco-owned uh, network and uh, designed it from the ground up and then basically helped Canada Post uh, go to tender for it and then helped manage the vendor deliver uh, that network and that was the beginning of the company uh, back in 1990 and it, uh, it laid the foundation um, because of our history in uh, telecommunications with the uh, commercialization of the internet uh, that became a concern and so we got into the cyberspace and so uh, we do an awful lot of work uh, with regards to architecture uh, especially enterprise architecture uh, as well as technical architecture. Uh, and from a cyber perspective, that's a broad spectrum, but we address the entire spectrum, everything from policy and guidance to pen testing to forensics to disaster recovery, business continuity planning, uh, and even, uh, even working on the data side, helping clients protect the data, mask the data, move the data. So nice. I, I can imagine you've seen a lot of changes since 1990 in your space in particular. Is there one or two things that really stand out for you? Uh, you know, there's a real movement towards off the shelf technology, uh, open source in some respects. Um, it's interesting. I've seen uh, I started in the industry with an outsourcing organization that had a data center. ISD was the company name. Uh, back in the day and uh, so government then had everything running on their computers as computers got cheaper they the government brought brought it back in-house as did the private sector they set up their own data centers uh, then it went offshore to India and now it's uh, the cloud was a brilliant marketing idea from mm -hmm. some American folks that said hey let's bring those jobs back to North America and we'll set up automated data centers and so yeah there's been some, some significant changes about where the processing is taking place and and how to drive the price down and make it more cost effective and so forth is that a challenge for you as a business owner going forward with the technology or with the industry kind of pivoting and changing all the time like that um, a challenge I, I think you need to recognize that um, uh, technology is always moving and always changing and in terms of uh, providing uh, advice and guidance do I you know it really doesn't matter to me if the if the computer sits in a closet in the same physical building or is sitting in country 
in, in North America, offshore, uh, you know, in India, it really doesn't matter. At the end of the day, uh, a lot of the work that we do in terms of building systems and platforms and and designing and so forth uh, are really not they're not impacted by where the physical computer is. What what uh, what led you to start your entrepreneurial journey? Um, it's fairly interesting. I uh, uh, I was uh, in university. I I originally went into to get a law degree, and my father was in the IT business, and he said to me, "Take a computer uh, programming course." And so I did, and it was a bit like a duck to water. I did it and said, oh, this is great, I love this. And so I came out of Carleton University with a, a BA in law uh, and nine uh, computer science credits. And so it was like, hmm, I think I really like uh, IT, but let's have a look at both. And so I got offered a job as a, as a young technician programmer um, and I looked at uh, the path ahead on the legal side and said, you know, I've just paid my way through university. I've now got to go through articling, law school, and so on and so forth. And I realized that I was being paid more money than a, than a, a new lawyer was being paid. And so I just said, you know, the money, there's money there. <laughs> yeah. I'm good at it. Why don't, I, why don't I spend my time and effort on there? The legal background, though, as, as much as it was, you know, undergraduate law degree, it was uh, sufficient to help me at least read contracts and be able to read large procurement vehicles from the federal government. And so I can read them with confidence and uh, and that's useful, but I, I really sort of dove into the the, uh, the IT side of things. From a, becoming an entrepreneur was really quite simple. I, I um, years ago I was a bobsetter, so I would take six months on and six months off and I found myself with a, uh, the firm that I was working with was had agreed to me taking the the winter off, and about two weeks before I was meant to go, uh, told me that sorry, Norman, we're we're uh, we need you to stick around. We can't afford to have you leave. And I simply said, well, the Bob said programs invested something like forty thousand dollars in me being in Europe for the next six <laughs> months. So I'm I'm going to go Bob setting, and I'm sorry that you've changed your mind because I'd certainly asked for the 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 to, uh, permission, uh, you know, months before, I came back from Bob setting, got myself a new job with a small firm in town, um, and I started to realize that uh, most of the people that were selling IT services knew nothing about writing code, had never written a line of code in their life, hmm. and so more often than not, I was going to interviews to actually understand what the customer wanted, and then come back and help the sales guy get what the customer wanted, and I just said, well. Why don't I try this selling thing? It looks pretty good. And the next thing I, I put on a sales hat for a few years nice. and had some really good success. I had good success here in town. I, I took a, a small shop from 20 to 100 in about two years. Got asked to go down to New Jersey and New York City and do the same thing with a with a, a branch that had lost money for five years and managed to take that from 20 to over 120 within two years. But when I turned around to the owner and said, okay, you know, the deal was if I make this profitable, you were going to match my compensation from uh, uh, from the previous uh, gig in Ottawa, uh, he reneged. He, 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 and, and I learned a lesson, you know, you need to, yeah. you need to have agreements in writing. You can't yeah. just uh, go with somebody's handshake and yeah. word. And, and so uh, at that point in time, I decided that I would look at trying to come back to Ottawa but also do it on my terms, try and own it. And I found uh, 
through the sporting community again, an ex-rugby player that I played with, a guy called Ian McMillan. And I went and uh, he, he was running a small shop in Toronto, a $4 million shop, and said, why don't you come back? Uh, and I said, well, I really want to work in Ottawa. He said, no problem. Write a business case. I wrote the business case. He pitched it to his partner. They blessed it. And, uh, and away we went. And, and within three years, we'd gone from $4 million to $34 million. Uh, and the bank that we were dealing with at the time um, said, we can't, we can't finance your growth. Uh, and it's funny because they were a customer as well. And we said, well, look, you know, you've asked us to put receivables in front of you. You can see they're mostly government receivables, either federal government, provincial government. Uh, the private sector is all financial groups that are all healthy. Uh, in fact, they owed us five million in receivables, but they wouldn't even recognize their own receivables. This is one of, you know, Canada's banks. And yeah, just, yeah. So you know, unfortunately, they forced us to have to sell the company at that point in time, and that wasn't a bad decision. And I didn't mind working for a public player for about sixteen or seventeen years, but you, you know, I've seen some pretty horrendous decisions made by public companies that don't really understand the space. Hmm. And um, it's interesting. It was yeah. a, a very much an eye opener. So when I I, um, I found myself in a position where the, the public company bought a, a, another a US-based firm and uh, a little bit of politics. They, uh, they wanted to reorg the Canadian team out, the management team, yeah. which they did. Uh, but much to their surprise, they didn't realize that the Canadian management team also sold and all had a number to meet. And so their revenues plummeted by uh, more than a hundred million over two years, and so uh, fairly significant uh, loss for them. But you know, it, it'll, it provided me with an opportunity to go back, and uh, I got involved with TRM a couple of years back. I bought my partners out, so uh, it's uh, the family trust owns it. So, which is a kind of a funny situation because it's held by the family trust, and there are three women and two men in the family trust. It's now a majority women-owned <laughs> company. Um, it's great. Uh, yeah, it is. It's yeah, a yeah. good story. And, yeah, and to be candid with you, it's uh, it's been it's been an interesting journey. Um, yeah. You know, my uh, I've I've spent thirty years in the IT business, and uh, and I, I know it pretty well. I really understand the federal government. And it's it's very much misunderstood by anybody that hasn't worked in the auto market. <laughs> uh, I'm often asked by uh, customers uh, and partners, and uh, um, when I say partners, are software firms that are trying to sell into this market. It's a big mystery, and I, I think I'm able to help them navigate through that. Um, and that's why we, we partner with a lot of software firms that have you know great tools and. Uh, uh, but you really just need somebody to help them navigate through the procurement process that yeah. exists within government. So you mentioned the bobsledding. You and I were talking before we uh, before we went live, and you were very highly competitive at a high level athlete. Um, any lessons from your athletic endeavors that have transferred over to to, for, to business? Yeah, you know, there's. Um, I wish they did. I should have learned them a little bit better. But you know, what became evident to me, I was on two national teams and. Uh, and there was politics at play on both teams, and 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 I was fortunate, um, you know. In many respects, politics played in my favor at sometimes, uh, and at other times it didn't. And and it became evident that, um, uh, similar to my experience with the, the with with getting things in writing, I. I cut a deal with bobsledding because I'd injured my back that I couldn't uh, 
the doctor had recommended I not do a squat as part of the testing uh, program. And I went to the director um, managing it. Um, Denise was her name. And I, uh, I got her approval to do the full set of testing without doing a 450 pound test. So uh, a squat. And the reality is I'd done them uh, 450 pounds test for the last seven years. Mm -hmm. And so here I am uh, getting uh, given a waiver for her for the testing. At the end of the testing, um, I had the best results I'd ever had. My training had, had paid off. Uh, I was excited because I'd scored something like uh, 150 more points and it put me in the top, uh, in the top echelon in terms of uh, fitness. But uh, one of the other athletes complained and said, "Hey, you can't, you can't not have him do the squad," and uh, and because I didn't have it in writing or an agreement uh, structured there, she basically overturned her decision and said, "Sorry, you're not going to go to the '88 Olympics, even though I had qualified in the previous year, uh, because you didn't do the squat." And it, and I didn't have the option to go and do the squat right now. I said, yeah, well, yeah. "I'll do the squat right now yeah. if that, that's what it takes." But the you know the doctor had warned me that there might be a. An, uh, a chance to have the injury injury reoccur. What became evident to me is, though, uh, you need to get things in writing mm. <laughs> for sure. Uh, and you know what? You need people in your camp. And the reality was, the Bob said world was so small that there wasn't. There was a camp of one, and so you know the director. <laughs> if uh, the, the they held they, they held all the power. They, they did. Right? Yeah. And in fact, the coaches that were you know, hey, no, I'm really sorry about this, but I don't want to lose my job because this is my job. You know, I realized that, geez, all of the coaches that were involved didn't want to lose the opportunity to go to Europe and, and manage the team and, and support the team and coach the team. And so those people were not going to voice their, oh, that's the right guy that should be going. Why have, you, why have you done that? Because they were putting their jobs at risk. And it was one of those lessons you learn that you realize that, you know what, people may agree with you and side with you, but they won't, they're not going to do it with the only authority that has the, you know, the, the person that can have essentially fire them and let them go. And so it was interesting. It was a good lesson to learn at a, at a relatively young age, I would assume. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Not a bad no, lesson yeah, to learn. Yeah. Uh, tough, but, tough pill to swallow for sure. But yeah. Uh, it, and it, you know, it's one of these things that politics, especially when you don't own the firm, and you're in a public entity, you know, all of a sudden uh, you start to see that, okay, I, uh, you know, with a big public company, if you're the president, it's in your best interest to build some relationships with somebody on the board. Well, nobody turned around when they gave you the job and said, hey, you should go and talk to somebody on the board. Um, and so, you know, you need to get, you need to get enough collateral that people are on your side to support you in a public company, especially when you're the guy at the top of the ladder. Yeah, and so yeah. uh, that's a challenge, you know, it's, it's, and it's not an easy lesson to learn. And it's, uh, it's not something that I'd, I'd ever worried about. You know, from a sporting perspective, I'd always thought the results would speak for themselves. And so why would mm. I worry about it? Uh, but, but, you know, uh, rugby is a, a great example. Our national rugby team uh, was long listed for 10 years. Uh, it took me uh, it took me eight years to get to the to the national team. And I, uh, I thoroughly enjoyed the experience. Um, but I was offered uh, seven years in a row. Come to B.C., you'll play for Canada. Come to B.C., you'll play for Canada. 
And I just sort of said, you know, there's lots of good rugby players that are coming out of Ontario. There's a, a much bigger pool of players. Why don't you keep? Why don't you let me play from here? Because the rugby is pretty good here. And and I had toured BC with the with the rugby club I was with, and we'd won and lost games. So I knew we could play at that level, at the club level, certainly. Uh, and when when I look at some of the players, you know, Al Sharon came out of Ontario. Mm-hmm. Like, h- how good does it get? The guy's just made the World Rugby Hall of Fame. And so there's a there's an example of how good some of the players coming out of Eastern Canada are. But still to this day, you know, the academy's built in uh, uh, Victoria, like at the Al Sharon Academy. <laughs> so you look at it and go, okay, so, you know, you want to play for the national team, you need to go to Victoria and Vancouver. And that was a lesson learned. But, you know, I love the guys I was playing with in, in uh, Ontario. And I really did want to try and uh, improve a lot of, of all the rugby players because I, I honestly, having played at the national team, there are players that I played with that should have played for Canada that didn't. Because they didn't live in BC, and that's still to this day that rings true. If you want to play for Canada, you got to put your pride aside and go. Okay, I got to go to BC. I got to yeah. do it, and that, that's unfortunate and a hard lesson learned. But mm. uh, that's the way it is. Have some of the so you've seen you know the right way to do things as a leader, and sometimes the wrong way. So have you taken some of those lessons uh, now that you're leading your own company and, and managing a group of people? Have you taken some of those lessons to heart? Yes, yes, and no. Uh, you know, I, um, I, I was successful in sports because of commitment and passion, and I think the same applies to business. If I was to look at why people succeed in in business and fail more often than not when the when things get tough and become become a grind or you've got your back to the wall you've got to put the time and effort in you got to find a way you got to get creative you've got to think outside of the box and be prepared to work hard to get there you know i've uh i've 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 had it Everyone sort of acknowledges the career I've had as being a pretty spectacular career. I took a, a, com- a company from the ground up in Ottawa and grew it to $66 million. I took, I was involved with Agilon and left, uh, left running that company as the president. It was a $266 million company, coast to coast. It doesn't get much better. No. Um, and yet I know that we're, geez, we, we would have management discussions that were pretty pretty uh, uh, vocal disagreements and sometimes yeah you have to figure out okay am I gonna am I gonna is it worthwhile giving up my life for this yeah. and being passionate about it or do I concede um, I'll give you a simple example um, the Ottawa market is it was has always been uh, a market that requires the ability to write good proposals and I would look at the private sector proposals that my colleagues in Toronto and Calgary and Edmonton were writing. Now Edmonton was some government stuff, but it was the quality of the documents were 
were not <laughs> what I was used to. <laughs> and so I sort of said to them, look, I've got a bid team here in, in, in Ottawa. Let me write your bids and, and you pay for your bids and so forth. And I, I was getting nothing from them. Nobody wanted to do that. So I said, great. For the next year, I'll write your bids free of charge. You have a bid you want that's a special bid. Send it my way. I'll have the bid team write it. We'll write the bids for any, any of the offices in Canada. And let's see what happens. And what was interesting in that exercise, the bid quality went through the roof. Uh, we won all kinds of new business because uh, because of the quality of the bids in those markets. And the feedback was the competition weren't providing anywhere near the quality of bids that we were. And it sounds like a simple little thing, but you know, those you're often judged by the quality of the document you produce. Of course. And so, uh, what was telling was after a year where I'd given it away for free, I was able to point to every single branch manager who now conceded that there was value in the bid process and the fact that we were able to aggregate all of the corporate collateral in one center and have the references and have the ability to tell the story that enabled us to win on that particular proposal in such a way and the just the sheer quality of the document they recognize, you know, that's that's a value. And so instead of my branch paying for that capability mm -hmm. fully, now I, I was able to share the costs, grow that team, uh, double the size of the team from three to six, and it became a meaningful piece. But it's one of those lessons that, you know, the, uh, the, the folks in the other markets couldn't see the benefit from it. And from where I was sitting, having seen some of the documents they'd sent out, I just kind of went... This is going to be so much better. You just need to trust me and do it. And sometimes you got to, I gave it away. I did it yeah, for yeah, free, yeah. knowing that, you know, give me a year. Those guys will have a different perspective. And they did. And managers came back and said, you know, I, I know you were passionate about it. I know you wanted to have this. And I'm sorry I disagreed with you, but I agree with you now. And, and that's... You know, that kind of passion when you're trying to drive a company, you know, and, and I wasn't the guy in charge at the time. I was, you know, I was one of the VPs and, uh, but I was an outspoken VP. And um, again, the, uh, the other scenario that's a little bit different is um, in a consulting firm of that size, uh, I was the only one in the management table with a technical background. I'd even worn the CIO hat for the company for three or four years. Hmm. And so... Fundamentally, you know, I would be having discussions about strategy that often hinged around the technology solution and not about the marketing and you know right. whatever. And right. so, um, and sometimes, and sometimes I'd lose those debates as well because I was one voice out of six or seven. Did you find marketing was always kind of the default? Is that you know people say, oh, it's a marketing issue, a marketing challenge, or um, yeah, you know, more often not. It, it's a comfort zone as well. And so it right. was really about, you know, are we in that business? Do we want to get in that business? Um, uh, the, fir the firm I was with was primarily in the sort of IT staffing business. Uh, we, we, I hired a management consulting group because, again, I was drilling. Uh, and, and the fellow that was leading that became a VP as well and a senior VP, very capable fellow. And, uh, and, and so, again, we were selling management consulting and IT consulting hand in hand because that's what our market needed. Mm. And I was trying to show the benefits of leveraging some of the management consulting stuff. And again, it was tough to get an audience when you had 
people that were, yeah, I'm in the staffing business. I just want to, I just want to yeah. put a person to work and, you know, they're qualified and have customers happy and whatever. And so, uh, again, it's, uh, it, it was, it was, it was an interesting time, and, yeah. and as I say, uh, you know, but th that's how firms grow, right? You know, mm -hmm. you, you end up having people agree and disagree. It's all healthy debate. Uh, um, but from a from a, you know, why do people work for those firms? Well, they can see people are passionate about it. They mm -hmm. they love what they do. Yeah. Like the the, uh, what was interesting being part of a global player, the Canadian arm. Uh, the morale, the uh, the uh, the the mood within the workplace was great. It was you know there was a great um, uh, just a, a great camaraderie and commitment and uh, the, the working environment was as healthy as I'd ever seen it. And and yet I talked to you American colleagues and it was a very different story. It was doom and gloom. And what, so, what, what do you think was the difference here? You know, we, uh, Ian McMillan, my partner, was a phenomenal leader. Um, he captained Canada, and uh, and Ian might be five foot seven and maybe one hundred and fifty five pounds, maybe one hundred and sixty tops. Right, and so right. there's a guy playing rugby at the at the at the national team level. That's not not the biggest guy on the <laughs> right, field, and, right? And yet a phenomenal leader. And and yeah, even keeled. Uh, Never gets flustered, um, or, you know, very well organized, well structured, um, open to listen. Uh, he was a phenomenal leader to work with, and, and that that's a, a big part of it. But he also saw value. He saw value in knowing everybody in the company, um, making them feel welcome. Um, he would talk to anybody in the company. Really, you know, just, just personal touches? Very, very, very personal, but also engaged, aware. Uh, you know, aware of issues, uh, would address them in a timely fashion. Uh, his door was always open. He'd make himself available. Um, he, you know, we had multiple branches, Vancouver, Victoria, uh, Calgary, Edmonton, uh, Regina, uh, um, you know, Montreal. Uh, we eventually opened up in Quebec City, uh, St. John uh, and uh, Halifax. And so, you know, we, we had, you know, he would be in one of those branches at least once a quarter. And so, mm -hmm. you know, he was going out, meeting with the staff, regardless of whether it was, you know, the biggest uh, branch or the smallest branch, he would make himself available. And uh, very, very strong on the planning side, uh, communicated, you know, what we were going to do, how we were going to do it, who was going to do it, what the timelines were. Very strong on following up on that. So really... Very simple things, yeah. but but they have to be done consistently. Uh, and, and, and Fair you, comment. Yeah, it's a yeah. brilliant comment. It's yeah. it's bang on. And, and you know what it, it what it allowed for us to do is say, here was a problem we had last year. Do we have it this year? No. Yeah. Why is that? Because we planned for it. We figured out how we were going to tackle it. We gave two or three people the responsibility. We worked with them to help implement it. Now we've implemented it. Have we still got that problem? Sometimes you do. Yeah. You know that didn't resolve it. What do we need to do now? Yeah. Well, we resolved some of the issues, but we didn't resolve all of them. And again, it's that level of communication that says, "Great, how critical is that to us? Do we need it? Do we do, do do we need to spend more time with it? Yeah, we think we do. Great, we'll do that." Um, we, we were one of the first shops to ever to adopt ISO nine thousand and one, which is a quality process. Right. Most shops would spend a couple hundred thousand dollars trying to figure it out and quit and say, "Oh, this is crazy exercise, whatever." <laughs> We found that you could take the ISO 9001 process, 
put it into our CRM, uh, be able to use it as an audit trail, create an audit trail, and we could tell whether people were being compliant and following the things they needed to do. And this CRM would actually produce a to-do list and say, you know, you need to follow up with a client, you need to follow up with a consultant, you, need, you know, these are the things you need mm -hmm, to do mm -hmm. when and when you need to do them. And so it would pop up in your to-do list. And so as an account executive, it was very easy to sort of remain compliant as long as you followed your to-do list. Um, and the same thing existed for other staff members. You know, there were things that they needed to do to remain compliant in terms of the quality of the work and the service they were providing. Uh, and once, once we'd figured out how we could automate that, uh, we were able to very easily maintain our ISO 9001 standard. Unfortunately, uh, in 20 years after it, 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 trying to get the government on board with, you know, using that as a corporate criteria, which they never, ever did until recently I saw a bid that actually asked for it. Yeah. Um, uh, it was one of those things that was of great value to us, but it, it, uh, in Europe, ISO 9001 was uh, heavily required uh, to do business, but uh, it never took it never took off in Canada. Jeez. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So to switch gears here, we, we talked a little bit before we went live about some of the work you've done in the community. Very interesting. Do you mind sharing with our listeners um, your involvement in the community? That sure. You've been, in particular, the Brian Smith uh, piece to this. So, so uh, it's it's interesting. It, in my Bob setting days, in the very early years, uh, in fact, the very first year. Um, we used to call ourselves Team Poverty because we had no funding whatsoever. <laughs> Great branding. And, yeah. yeah. And so we just kind of said, you know, what do we do to change this? How do we get how do we get the funding back? There, there had been funding. It had been cut by uh, the Canadian Olympic Association, I think. So, you know, we looked at it and said, look, um, well, first things we need to do is let's make sure we're competitive. And so we, we needed to be in the top 16. And if we could get it in the top eight, that would be ideal. Uh, as soon as you get into the top 16, it allows the athletes to get carded and it gives, uh, it gives the, the nation a bit of recognition. Um, I ended up trying to get uh, some media, somebody to, to, to do a story on uh, the group of bobsledders. And uh, we were able, I was able to get a hold of Brian Smith, who was very generous about coming out and, and uh, bringing a video crew and uh, doing an interview with the team uh, on the on the outside of uh, the uh, the uh, uh, the gym that we worked out at, which is called the it's just escaping. <laughs> okay, um, and it'll come back to me anyway. So he he came out with the crew. Uh, basically, we were uh, uh, on the road um, pushing a bobsleigh uh, uh, behind the OAC. Sorry, the OAC, yeah, yeah, and okay. so the Auto Olympic Club and yeah. the Auto. Athletic, athletic club. club, yeah, and and the in fact the Auto Athletic Club because of it ended up allowing us to uh, to get a discounted uh, sponsorship hmm. with our athletes, which was great, mm -hmm. um, and they were very generous over the years. But Brian Smith was kind enough to take his time and and help us get some national recognition on television, and that helped us reach out and get uh, the likes of Sun Ice to, uh, to provide sponsorship and clothing and other organizations to put some money or clothing or something towards the program. And then, unfortunately, the, the tragedy occurred. And so um, 
coincidentally, I got approached by uh, the Boys and Girls Club and a group that was running uh, the Brian Smith uh, charitable golf event. And uh, they'd been running it for a year or two. And they said, would you like to get involved? And uh, I liked the... I liked that we were giving back to the Ottawa Boys and Girls Club. I thought that was a great, mm-hmm. meaningful charity. I had a, an instant connection because of Brian Smith, and I, you know, and I knew what he had done for me and uh, and the Bob said team, and it was very generous of him to do that. and uh, And so I got involved with the committee. Uh, ended up becoming the prime sponsor for the tournament, um, and and eventually sat sat with with the committee and. Uh, and had a fairly major voice as the prime sponsor. And so we were able to effectively uh, sort of grow that to a three-course tournament, maintain it for a number of years. We changed the pricing. We originally had people pay sort of uh, a fee to get in and then have to pay at every hole. So they had, it meant that they had to have money in their pockets and whatever. And we said, look, let's get away from that. We'll do all the all the events that we do at all the holes, we'll make those free and we'll charge a, a bigger, a premium price. I don't think people will mind. And they, they didn't. Uh, they hmm. accepted the higher prices. And effectively, over the course of uh, about 15 years or so, um, we were able to make over a million dollars for the Boys and Girls Club. And, That's amazing. Uh, Congratulations. Ah, cheers. Yeah, it was, yeah. you know, and, and the Boys and Girls Club were very kind to me. They gave me a, they gave me a paddle with a plaque on it. Oh, and. And uh, and signatures from all the girls, girls and boys in the club, and uh, it's, I have it hanging uh, up at my cottage. So you know, it's it, it was uh, it, that was a a great sort of local uh, piece, and, and we, we put lots of time and effort yeah. in. And I, and I, you know, and, and I think now the boys and girls club are just uh, running an annual tournament. And uh, Brian Smith, after twenty years, we kind of said, well, we should right, you know, right. Uh, time to move on. So. Yeah. So before we let you go, where can our listeners find out more about TRM? So uh, website's always a, a good place. TRM Technologies, Inc. Uh, is the name of the company. Uh, YouTube channel. Uh, I've got a number of practice leaders uh, uh, with uh, teasers and full-on presentations uh, covering everything through the cyber spectrum. So everything from uh, best practices for ver- threat and risk assessments, privacy impact assessments, uh, penetration testing, mm. uh, disaster recovery, business continuity planning, forensics, uh, data, geo data, how, how best to manage that and navigate through that. Um, so the, the the YouTube channel and TRM Technologies, uh, the website will get you to any of the information you need. So. Great. Thank you very much for your time. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Great.